You're listening to The Raven and the Writing Desk, the weekly podcast about the writings of Chris Lester and Liminal Corvid Press. This is episode 82. Hello, everyone. Welcome to The Raven and the Writing Desk. I'm your host, Chris Lester. You can learn more about me and my writings at chrislester.org and metamorecity.com. Every week, I bring you installments of fresh new fiction, available in audio for the first time anywhere. So let's get started with this week's story. Today I'm bringing you the second part of my Metamore City novella, Divide by Zero. If you haven't heard episode 81 yet, go back and listen to it before continuing on with this week's episode. The following recap will contain spoilers. In part one, we traveled far south from Metamore to the great city of Pyralis on the southern coast of Galendor. Here we met Halcyone Carmenos, a brilliant young theoretical physicist who has just completed her doctoral thesis. Halley presents her research to a large audience at the university, introducing a new and testable model for how space and time connect with the dimensions of the ether. The ether is the part of the universe that mana comes from and by shaping mana into thaumatogenic fields, mortals can create magic. Halley shows the audience several predictions of her new model, but the most important one concerns prophecy. According to Halley's equations, prophecy, seeing the future, is physically and magically impossible. This is huge news. People have been trusting in prophecies for thousands of years, depending on them to guide decisions that shape the course of history. Now, Halley's research has shown that all of that was based on a lie. The future is a book that no one can open. After her presentation, Halley notices a man in a pale green business suit, looking up at her equations with great interest. He congratulates her on her brilliant research, but he also tells her that her model is incomplete. What she has written here doesn't really work. Hallie, who has heard criticisms of this sort over and over, and never failed to disprove them, politely asks him why he thinks the model doesn't work. Because griffins can't fly upside down, he says. And before she can ask him what he means, he turns and disappears into the crowd. Divide by Zero A Tale of Metamore City Written in red by Chris Laster. Part 2 I found it difficult to concentrate that weekend, and even more difficult to relax. Even in the midst of the post-defense celebration with my friends and lab mates, my mind kept turning back to the stranger in the green suit. Clearly the man was insane. Griffins can't fly upside down? What sort of an answer was that? And as for the model being incomplete, that was almost a tautology. Models are incomplete by their very nature. They break down the complex realities of the universe into something that can be understood, analyzed, and to a certain extent predicted. There was no rational reason to believe that the man had any idea what he was talking about. Still, my subconscious couldn't leave it alone. There was something about the way he said it, the way he looked at me, a kind of private knowledge, as if the whole thing were a joke and he already knew the punchline. 
A philosopher or a theologian who was trying to discredit me would have seemed angry, or at least combative. He just seemed amused. And Griffin's? Most people who took issue with my model disputed its implications for divination magic. What did a Griffin's flight capabilities have to do with it? I spent an hour going over my manuscript on Saturday night, but I couldn't see anything that might have triggered the man's comment. On Sunday, I went surfing with Sophie and some of her friends, one of my few social pastimes, hoping to take my mind off of the stranger and his words. After wiping out for the fifth time, I had to conclude it wasn't working. You'd better pay more attention to what you're doing, Hal, Sophie said, as I dragged my board and my bruised body ignominiously back to shore. You're going to really get yourself hurt if you aren't more careful. I know, I know. I said, nodding wearily. I let out a long sigh, then winced as my ribs ached. Apparently it isn't my day. Maybe I'll take off the wetsuit and just lay in the sun for a while. She put a hand on my arm, looking up at me with serious eyes. Hey, you all right? I shook my head. I don't know. I paused. I don't suppose you have any friends who know anything about griffins. She cocked her head quizzically. Griffins? Griffins. Specifically, how they fly. She wrinkled her brow thoughtfully. Magic, I think. Something about them being too big for their wings? I snorted. Yes, I already knew that much. I was hoping for something a little more specific. She set down her board and leaned on it for a moment her eyes distant. There was this guy I dated once. He was a wizard who worked on, what do you call it, miracle-working magic, like walking on water or feather-falling? Thaumaturgy, I supplied. Right, that's it. Anyway, he was doing his journeyman research on flight magic. Maybe he knows something about griffins. I'll give you his number when we get back. Fantastic, I said, grinning. Thanks so much, Sophie. She shrugged. No prob. She gave me another odd look. What's this about, anyway? A gull swooped overhead, keening as it flew out to sea. I watched as it circled and banked over the waves, searching for its next meal. I'm not sure yet myself, I admitted. Maybe nothing. I thought about the stranger, his knowing smile and glittering eyes. Or maybe not. That evening I talked to Sophie's wizard friend, Stephen. He couldn't tell me much about griffins that I didn't already know. His studies had focused on flight magic for humans. But he was able to point me to Dr. Uriel Kapler, a biothaumatologist at the University of Maryland. Dr. Kapler had built his career around studying the natural magic fields generated by some kinds of living creatures, and he had a long and successful working relationship with the griffins of the Sylvan Mountains. That's correct, he said, speaking to me by phone the following day. Griffins can execute brief barrel rolls, and they can even perform a loop if they first enter a steep dive to gain the necessary airspeed. But actually flying upside down? No, impossible. Their thaumatogenic fields can only generate lift on the ventral side of the body. Would it be possible to send me copies of your findings? I asked. Certainly. I'll forward them to you this afternoon. Send me the data on your model as well. I'd like to have a look at it. 
We compared notes over the next several days as we took my theoretical model and examined how it could be applied to Dr. Kapler's observations of Griffin's in flight. It took some time to put my equations into a form that would admit processing of his data, but by Friday we had come to one inescapable conclusion. It doesn't work, I said, staring in astonishment at the pages of calculations in front of me. Looks that way, Kapler agreed. If our calculations are correct, your model predicts that Griffin should be able to vector that lift field in any direction. They should be able to fly upside down. Unfortunately, that just doesn't fit the empirical reality. How could he have even seen this? I murmured, shaking my head. How did we not see this? Don't beat yourself up too much over it. It's a very ambitious model, and from what I can tell, it does seem to be very successful at predicting some kinds of thaumatogenic field behavior. It's not necessarily wrong, it's just incomplete. Incomplete. The word rang through my head like a gunshot as the eyes of the stranger looked back at me from my own thoughts. Dr. Kapler, there was a man at my talk who pointed this problem out to me. Somehow he saw it in the basic equations I sent you. Just saw it, without spending a week on it like we have. I described the man in the green suit. Does he sound like anyone in your field? Someone you might have met at a conference somewhere? I'm not sure. He doesn't sound familiar, but without a photograph I couldn't say. Whoever he is, though, he obviously knows something. If I were you, I'd try to find him. If he saw the problem that easily, maybe he has some ideas on how to fix it. I nodded, though I knew he couldn't see me over the phone. Good idea. Thanks again for your help, Dr. Kapler. My pleasure. Good luck, Dr. Carmenos. I felt odd as I turned off the handset. Dr. Carmenos. Technically, the title was mine by right. I had completed all the requirements— and been approved by my committee and the dean of the College of Natural Sciences, but it didn't feel like I'd actually earned it yet. There was a hole, a deep and significant hole, that ran right through the center of my work. Pietro and I had stuck our necks out by opening up my defense lecture to a broad audience, and the news of my project and its implications for the idea of prophecy was already spreading all over town. If my model contained this flaw, what else might be wrong with it? If I published the research without first plugging the holes in the model, Pietro and I both ran the risk of sullying our professional reputations. I looked down at the papers again and set my jaw. I will find you, mystery man, I thought grimly, and then we'll find out how much you really know. Two Gentlemen in Green Suit Re Our Talk on 4 June Analysis shows you were correct. Wish to know more. Request to meet via netlink. 15 June, 1800, UOP VR Domain, Thaumaton Cafe. Please send reply to halcyondays at icomanon.net to confirm or reschedule. The message ran for three days in the personal ad sections of the campus newspaper and both city papers, as well as on the open message boards in the university's WorldNet domain. On Tuesday morning, a message came to the address I had specified, stating simply, I shall attend. The sending address was listed as 7-80 at icomanon.net. 
Well, given my own decision to use an anonymous mailbox, I could hardly blame him for doing so. Still, I felt distinctly uncomfortable as I put on my Spelljack headset and tapped into the university's VR systems. There was no rational reason to be worried. The Thaumaton Cafe was familiar ground for me, a popular watering hole for physics and monology majors, and a virtual meeting was about as safe as one could ask for. If the situation turned unpleasant, I could simply jack out. Even so, there was something about the idea of meeting with the man that made the hairs on my neck stand on end. The way he had just seen the flaw in my model was unsettling. I was almost afraid of what else I might find out if he agreed to help me. With an effort of will, I deliberately pushed those fears aside, dismissing them. Intellectual cowardice was unbecoming in a scientist. I would find out what this man knew, and if he actually had any solutions for me, or was simply skilled in identifying the problem. He was already waiting for me as my virtual self entered the cafe. He'd taken a seat at a small table near the back and was nursing a hot beverage of some kind, which he raised in salute as he saw me. I ordered a coffee from the barista and carried it over to sit across from him. I sniffed it and took a sip, then raised my eyebrows in surprise. It was excellent, rich and dark, with accents of chocolate and cinnamon. They had clearly upgraded the sensory input modules since the last time I had been here. I set down my cup and extended a hand across the table, which he shook. Thank you for meeting with me, I said. Oh, my pleasure, he said, showing me a smile. It was rather charming, actually. Not the manic grin I had seen on him the first time we had met. How can I be of assistance? I was hoping you could tell me, actually, I admitted. That flaw you saw in my model about the griffins? It was astonishing. It took me a week to examine it, and I had to contact an expert in the field, but you were right. The model doesn't fit the empirical data. It wasn't even close. I took another sip of coffee and shook my head. The trouble is, I can't see where I went wrong. I've been going over the equations for days. The math all works. He shrugged, taking a drink from his own mug. Mathematics can be correct and still be wrong. I can show you the math for a null-dimensional non-space or a five-sided cube, and it will all be right, and still be wrong. The question is whether the underlying axioms I'm using fit with the reality. I nodded slowly. He had a point. The history of physics was filled with incomplete models of reality, which predicted the behavior of the world very well in limited cases, but fell apart in areas where their underlying assumptions did not apply. The laws of mechanics were like that. One could use them to predict the motion of a rubber ball, but not a neutron, even though both were composed of matter and carried a neutral charge. All right, so you're saying that there's something wrong with one of the model's axioms. Maybe, he said, his green eyes sparkling again. Or oh, maybe the griffins are just underestimating themselves. Either way, wouldn't you like to know? Definitely, I agreed. I'd like to have you take a closer look at my work. Perhaps you can see where I've gone wrong. I'd prefer if I can teach you to see it, he said easily. You're the one who has to write the paper, after all. I nodded, taking his point. When would you like to start? He checked his watch, a golden monstrosity with at least six smaller dials set into the face of a larger one. 
I doubted that anything like it existed outside of the virtual world. I have some other business to attend to tonight, and a few preparations to make. Let's say tomorrow morning. Ten o'clock, in your office? Fair enough, I agreed. It's still my office for a little while longer. Pietro's next student hasn't arrived yet. Excellent, he said, rising to his feet. Until then, Dr. Kamenos. Wait, I said, putting a hand on his arm. An electric tingling sensation ran through me, almost making me gasp. Apparently there was something wrong with the cafe's interaction module. It must have happened when they installed the new sensory systems. He paused, waiting patiently while I recovered from the odd sensation. You... you never told me who you are, I said at last, looking up into his merry green eyes. He chuckled, reached behind my ear, and produced a business card. A nice bit of sleight of hand, even in virtual... He dropped it into my open palm, and I looked down to read it. Septimus Octaginta. Mathematician, monologist, cultural gadfly, scholar without portfolio. 7-80 at icomanon.net. 7.80.1001000.9. Septimus Octaginta? I raised my eyebrows at the obvious pseudonym. Seventh eighty in Old Sweelman? Please, call me Septimus. He winked, and then I got it. Oh, hells. It's a riddle, isn't it? Seven letters and their numerical values add up to eighty? His grin got even broader, and I couldn't help but laugh. I thought mathematicians stopped playing that game two or three hundred years ago. Septimus shrugged. What can I say? I've always had a certain affection for the classics. Good day, Dr. Kamenos. He paused, then snapped his fingers as if he had just remembered something. Oh, yes, he said, his expression abruptly becoming serious. He leaned forward over the table, his voice low and urgent. This may seem somewhat strange, and I do hope you won't take it the wrong way, but it's very important that you answer me honestly. What size are your pants? I blinked. What? Your pants, Dr. Kamenos. What size are they? Um, eleven tall? Why? You'll see tomorrow. Watch out for puddles. He straightened up and tipped me that two-fingered salute again. Then he jacked out, his avatar dissolving into green sparkles of light that floated out in all directions and slowly faded away. Cute. I shook my head, feeling disoriented all over again. Watch out for puddles? Another riddle, I supposed. The man seemed to take a perverse delight in them. I fingered the card thoughtfully for a minute, then slipped it into a pocket so it would be stored in my own computer along with my avatar. I could work out his riddles later. The important thing was that he had agreed to help me. I would learn whatever I could from this Septimus, no matter how annoying his little games might be. And that's the end of part two. What does Septimus have planned for Hallie? Come back next week and find out. Cheryl Alloway said, Writing is a gift to both the writer and the reader. So, let's see what I'm wrapping up for us this week. Here's your weekly writing report. (laughs) 
I wrote 5,957 words this week over the course of 7.75 hours for an average writing speed of 769 words per hour. As of Saturday morning, when I'm writing this script, I've gone 26 days without breaking my chain. This week I did a little more writing on The Lost and the Least, but then I realized I had gotten a little off track from where I thought this story would go when I outlined it. Most of the important elements I had planned are still there, but some of them are happening at different points in the timeline, which changes how those story elements will come together. I decided that I like where the story actually went better than what I'd first planned, so I spent three days this week working on a new outline that will accommodate the changes. I also started work on a new Christmas story this week. I've been toying around for a couple of weeks with the idea of doing another Metamore holiday special. And on Friday, I figured out what I wanted the story to be about. So, I'm now about 1,000 words into this new story, which I'm calling A Wizard Family Solstice. Hopefully, I can have it finished in the next week or so. This weekend, I did my drawing for the Divine Intervention giveaway. Ian Gordon was the lucky winner, and I'll be sending out his signed copy of the book this week. Congratulations, Ian! I'm also in the process of sending out the signed copies for patrons who gave at least $150 to support the Patreon this year. If you're one of those super generous patrons, please make sure I have your current mailing address so I can get your book out to you. And once again, thanks for being such awesome supporters of my work. If you'd like to be eligible for future giveaways and to get behind the scenes author commentaries, bonus artwork, and other cool stuff, You should join my Patreon campaign. All you need is a PayPal account or a credit card. Head on over to patreon.com/slash author Chris Lester to see the reward levels and make a pledge today. And now, the feedback. Hey, Chris, it's Sarah Testarossa. I just wanted to let you know that I have indeed been listening just a little bit behind the curve. I'm actually about to listen to the last. Chapter, but I wanted to at least say something before I did. I like kind of savoring things sometimes, and I'm nervous because I don't want it to end, even though I know it has to come to an end, and even though I know that you know certain people who I really like will survive, and that's cool and all, but I know there will be ramifications, blah de blah de blah. But no, I just wanted to say before I even listened to the last episode that I've really enjoyed you podcasting this novel. I mean, I know I ended, I have a copy of the book, but. There's just the ability to listen in audio during my commute is just so so important, and it just gets me the fiction that I love, and just makes things a lot easier in terms of having the time to get fiction in, even when I don't have as much free time because I'm always driving somewhere. Hey, Sarah. Yeah, I know that feeling well. My current job gives me a lot of time to listen to things while I'm working, but not a lot of time to stop and read text on a page, especially if I want to get some writing done too. Giving people the freedom to enjoy my stories in the midst of a busy schedule is one of the reasons that I'm committed to continuing to make my fiction available in audio. Anyway, I want to say that I've really enjoyed the developments in the last couple chapters leading up to the final chapter. I feel for Kate. I feel for pretty much everybody, like even Zeke, because you know he got pretty wrapped up in things and pretty screwed over in terms of who he trusted with trusting Westerson. But 
I just thought that the end of the penultimate chapter was so freaking badass. I loved how they were doing the transfer of the rest of their to Kate. And, you know, we knew there was something going on with Kate. I was just very curious as to what it was. And I'm really glad that Hal was reunited with his mother. I had a feeling that that would be a thing, although not necessarily in one of the bodies. I thought maybe when he went back into the rest that that would be a thing. I really liked Hal confronting Zeke. That was awesome. I'm glad that he got a chance to say those things because, well, Zeke needed to hear them and Hal needed to get them off his chest, um, even though his chest belonged to Seppi. Uh. <laughs> I agree. This shows the importance of having good beta readers, because in my first draft, I had let that thread between Hal and Zeke fall by the wayside. One of the most challenging things about writing a novel with a lot of characters like this is making sure that all the storylines get tied up at the end. An observant beta reader is invaluable for reminding you about those loose threads, and that's one of the things Abby did for me here. Anyway, I thought it was really cool how Kaya dealt with the, um, you know, well, what do you think should be done with him, with Kate, and kind of forced Kate to start taking a look at the things she'd been thinking. I, I don't know that Kaya can see inside her head. I don't think she can either, you know, despite her powers. I don't think that's one of them. Correct me if I'm wrong. But anyway, I just think it's really cool how she's just like, okay, well, what, would you do? what do you think should be, should be done with him? What is the right thing? I thought that was really cool. Thanks. Writing Kaya is an interesting challenge. On the one hand, she's thousands of years old and has a lot of wisdom and perspective. On the other hand, she's never been mortal, never been human. So there are things about her people that she will never really understand, even when she wants to. This is a big part of why she delegates a lot of the responsibility of running the Empire to servants who either are mortal or have been mortal at some point in their lives. But one of the things she does understand is that there is sometimes a disconnect between what the law says is right and what the heart says is right. Sometimes the law has to restrain the heart, so that people don't get trapped in cycles of vengeance, or let the guilty go free just because they're popular or famous or well-liked. And sometimes the heart has to restrain the law, when mercy and compassion take precedence over justice. That disconnect is what Kaya is trying to get Kate to deal with here, rather than hiding behind the letter of the law. And I thought it was cool that she had already asked Janus. And it's good that Janus is in a state that Kaya was able to talk to him. You know, I don't know if he's going to make it, but at least right now he can talk, so that's not really. Yes, Janus is going to be okay. He's got a long period of recovery ahead of him before he can be ready for combat again. But as you know by now, he's at least back on light duty. Plus, a Lightbringer Carol actually takes place in the December following this story, so for those who have been keeping track of the date stamps on these stories, that was a bit of a giveaway that he was going to make it. So, yeah, I'm looking forward to the last chapter. I probably won't even get to listen to the whole thing on the ride, so it'll be a bit of a tease. But thank you again, and looking forward to seeing what you podcast next. Take care. If you'd like to share your thoughts about the show, Send your feedback in text or audio to metamorecityfeedback at gmail.com. To leave a voicemail, dial area code 641-715-3900, then enter extension 255082, followed by the pound sign. My Facebook is facebook.com slash author Chris Lester, 
The fan group is Fans of Metamore City on Facebook, and my Twitter handle is Ethereus, E-T-H-E-R-I-U-S. If you like what I'm doing on this show, leave a review on iTunes. It makes a big difference in helping new people to find the show. That's all for this week. I'll be back next time with more fiction fresh off the writing desk. Until then, keep it on the bright side. This is Chris Lester, signing out. The contents of this podcast are copyright 2006 and 2016 by Chris Lester and Liminal Corvid Press. The show is released under a Creative Commons, attribution, non-commercial, no derivatives license. So don't change it, don't sell it, but feel free to share it all you like. For more information about this license, please visit creativecommons.org.